Genesis chapter 35, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. Genesis 35 and verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. You no longer shall be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padanaram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. This is God's word to us. Let's pray together now. Heavenly Father, would you take your word and help us to see from it that which you intend for us to see, knowing each of us is in different places and have different needs and different experiences, and yet your spirit takes your word and makes it effective to each of our hearts. Would you do that this morning? Would you make it effective in each one of our hearts? Give us ears to listen. Help us to understand. Help us to pay attention and not be distracted. Lord, help us to see 
all that is intended for us today from your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, the line that is the sermon title this morning, His Compassions Never Fail, is from the book of Lamentations, and we read it this morning, or I read it this morning, as the Assurance of Pardon, Lamentations 3. But it's probably more well known to most of us from the hymn that was inspired from that passage of Scripture, Great is Thy Faithfulness. We've sung it so many times. I listen to a podcast uh, during the week, almost every weekday. Uh, I try to listen to the podcast called The World and Everything in It. It's put out by World Magazine and commend it to you. It's a short, kind of a news-ish show. They cover the news, but they also do some, uh, just some life stories or whatever. And one of those stories this week was on music for funerals, which sounds a little depressing, but it wasn't. It was really upbeat. It was kind of a neat story. They do it in the fashion of NPR radio where they go and they interview, and so you hear people's voices and speaking and so forth. They interviewed a number of people who talked about their favorite uh, hymns from either you know, a funeral from a family member or a friend, or some had thought about hymns they wanted to have sung at their own funeral, and so they explained the reason why. And Great is Thy Faithfulness is one of those hymns, as you might not be surprised to hear, that that was one that was a common one mentioned. And we understand why when we attend a funeral, we're comforted by the faithfulness of God, by knowing that he is sure, that he never changes, that his mercies never end, that he is true. And when we ourselves get to the end of our lives, we look back and through all of the good and all of the bad, the one thing for us that we realize that stays the same, the one constant, the one sure thing is, of course, our faithful God. But funerals of our friends and family, also our own funerals, that's not the only time to think about the faithfulness of God, is it? This really, in a sense, is a life song, a daily song. It's why the writer of Lamentations says this, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, right? Great is thy faithfulness. New every morning. It's that idea that every day, that we wake up, this is our life song. Not that we necessarily sing that song every day, but that our life sings it. That the way that we live and the way that we trust God is in in a day-to-day continual pattern that we sing of the mercies of God. And the reason for this is that we are called to walk in faith and repentance. Frankly, it's the only way that we are aware of or can experience The mercies being new every morning as if we are walking in faith and repentance. If you're not walking trusting God, if you're not walking confessing your own sin and your need for God, His mercies are just, they're just another line in the song. They they aren't new to you every morning. And so there's this idea that's implied by this newness of God's mercies and our awareness of it that there is a, on our part, a walking in faith and repentance. Of course, we don't always do this. None of us do it perfectly. But the Lord draws us back and He convicts us of our sin. He reminds us of who He is. And when we turn in repentance, we thank Him that His mercies are new every morning, that His faithfulness is great. This is really what a snapshot of the believer's life ought to look like. However, when we dream or we think of our spiritual life, this is not often the way we think. What do we think about when we think of our spiritual life? We usually think of the mountaintop experiences. 
Right? If we could write the script for our spiritual life, it'd be one long mountaintop experience of great emotion. And uh, we just would feel great. We'd, we'd be obedient all the time. God, we'd know God's love perfectly all the time. But that's not the life, is it? That's not our lives. We're marred by sin ourselves. We live in a world that's been affected by sin. And we are affected by that. We can't be unaffected by it. And so our life, rather than looking like a mountaintop experience, the life of the faithful believer is really a life of faithful plotting. I don't remember who first used that word. I think it's an old Puritan. I didn't take the time to look it up because so often now, you know, when the Internet first came out, it was this great resource of information. And now it's this great resource of over-information. And it's, it's becoming harder and harder to find because so many people have used phrases, who was the original source. But somebody said it long ago. It's the idea of faithful plotting, that so much of our lives is simply putting one foot in front of the other. It's not glamorous. It's not the way we would dream it or we would want it. But it's caught up in that, that simple children's song, Trust and Obey, right? Trust and Obey. It's very very simple in some respects. However, we, as I've said, don't do it perfectly. And so sometimes we go through days or weeks or even longer seasons of cold and indifference toward God. We pursue the things that we want and we become indifferent to the things that He wants. And we fail to rest or find rest in obedience to Him. You know, a lot of times we think of obedience as work and difficulty, what we don't want to do. But what we fail to to really understand is that's where true rest is. You know, when we obey God, it takes away conflict. It takes away strife. We are at peace with others when we obey God. Why? Because he's called us to be at peace with others. And so when we have strife and conflict, James unpacks all this stuff. Why do you guys war against? It's, It's because of the sinfulness in our own hearts. That's where our problem is. So finding rest in obedience to God, we forget this. And this is exactly what we saw in Jacob's life in chapter 34. Really no mention, there's one mention of God. There's very very little acknowledgement of God in his life. He seems cold and indifferent to what has happened. Uh, In this last uh, episode that we looked at last week, he had failed to obey God's command to go to Bethel. He stopped short, remember, in Shechem. And that set the stage then for the attack against Dinah. And then he responded toward that with, with cold indifference. He didn't have the, the father's heart of compassion toward his daughter. He didn't have the desire to protect her, it seemed. Um, his sons became angry, and at first it seemed like they were going to get it, but then they went way over the top, right? They became excessive in their anger. They massacred the Shechemites. They looted the town. Jacob doesn't seem bothered by this. He doesn't call them out. In fact, at the end of the chapter, what Jacob seems most concerned about is his own safety, right? That little diatribe right at the end, he's more worried about what's going to happen to him. Jacob simply was not walking in faith and repentance in chapter 34. And as we saw at the end of the text next week, and as we pointed out, if that was the end of the story, it would have simply been a sad story. But just as we reminded ourselves last week, we needed the reminder last week, here's the reminder for us today. Chapter 35, how does it start? God comes to Jacob and speaks to him. It's not the end of the story. His mercies are new every morning. His compassions never fail. Great 
is the faithfulness of our God. And so on the heels of these many outrageous things that we saw in chapter 34, God doesn't wait for Jacob to figure it out, to get his life together, to feel guilty and come crawling back to him. God pursues Jacob. He goes to him and God says to Jacob. We've seen this so many times in Genesis of how God pursues us. We have the image in the the parable of the prodigal son that even in our most wretchedness, God is like a father who hikes up his robe to come running toward us, to embrace us in love. Remember where Jacob was. Remember what his state of mind was. He was paralyzed by fear. That's where we left him last week. He's paralyzed by fear, and rightfully so from a human standpoint, because of what had happened. He should have been afraid that those those other Canaanite towns were going to come and attack him. And in that state of mind, God comes to him. And he says, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. The command to arise and go up has a double meaning here. First of all, Bethel is higher by about a thousand feet than Shechem. So he's literally going to go up in elevation. But there's a more significant meaning in this. And that is it's a call to worship. We see this phrase used in the Old Testament in a number of locations, both in narratives as well as in the Psalms, to describe worship. That it is a, we are called to go up in worship. That's the language that's used. And and a lot of times, uh, it's Bethel at this point, but eventually becomes Jerusalem, where they would go up to worship. And if you, you know, Jerusalem is built on Mount Zion. But if you've ever seen pictures of Jerusalem, it is kind of uh, disappointing if you expected it to be on top of a mountain, right? It's like these just little wobbly hills, and it kind of sits low. The Mount of Olives kind of sits a little higher, and, it, you know, it's just it's not what you think of when you think of go up. Well, but that, that was the language, that as you approach God, you were going up. So that's what Jacob is being called to here. So God, even in his wretchedness, even in his sinfulness, even in his coldness of heart, God is calling Jacob to come, arise, and go up. It's the idea almost of a pilgrimage. It's to a specific place. We saw this with Abraham going to Mount Moriah. It's this idea of traveling. So Jacob is being called to complete the journey to Bethel. And this, of course, goes back to the promise that he had made when God came to him in the original theophany and said to him, you know, I will be your God. And Jacob says, okay, if you will be my God, I will trust you. If you'll keep me safe, uh, I will trust you. You will be my God. And he made a vow to return back to Bethel. We read this in Genesis 28. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. The narrator doesn't mention it specifically, but he describes something else that is happening in Jacob's heart. Jacob is not only being compelled to complete the vow. So he's, he's headed toward Bethel. That's where God had called him. We see him go on to Hebron after that, and that was the completion of this journey to where his father was. But the Bethel was where God had called him to go. And so that was, part, that was to include, be included in the journey. But we see also not only this desire to complete this task or complete this vow, but we also see in Jacob's acts and leadership repenting before the God of mercy. Notice how he commands that the foreign gods be put away. 
That's language of repentance, to stop sinning. Put sin away from you. These foreign gods would have included the ones that Rachel stole from her father's house. You remember that? She possibly still had those. They needed to get rid of them. The, uh, the earrings that are mentioned were like little, these little good luck charms. They probably came, at least some of them, from the Shechemites when they looted that town. Jacob's saying, we've got to get rid of them. We're going to bury them. Uh, we're going to put all these things away. He says, not only to get rid of the idols, but purify yourselves. It's this language of, of cleansing. Not only ceasing from sin, but being cleansed. We have a need to be washed. We have a need to be cleansed. And then he adds to that the, the instruction to change their garments, to change their clothes. And this is another symbol of cleansing. That we need, we are, our, our clothes, spiritually speaking, are stained by sin. We need that cleaned. But not only do we need our clothes to be cleaned, we really need new clothes. We need to change the clothes, right? It's more than just taking these off and throwing them in the washing machine. We need imputed righteousness. We need righteousness that's not our own. And this would only come from the graciousness of God and a gift that he would give to them. And so each of these acts then that we see described that Jacob is doing here are acts of repentance. He is both doing them and calling his people to follow in his leadership to do these things. We see the same acts or the same commands in the new covenant as well. 2 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 16, says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So there's that language of putting away idols, have nothing to do with idols. But it's symbolic for having nothing to do with sinfulness. It's putting sin away. Stop it. Cease it. James 4, chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. There's that language of cleansing, the need to be cleansed. And finally, Ephesians 4 is one example. It's in the New Testament multiple times where Paul uses the image of changing your garments, changing your clothes. Put off your old self, he writes, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the, and, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so each of these images that we see Jacob practice and lead out are also images that are of, that we practice in repentance. They're images of contrition. Just like Jacob and his family, we too need to be cleansed. We need to cease sinning. We need to have imputed righteousness. We need the new clothing because ours is soiled. And the gospel of Jesus is our only hope in this. If you are hearing this today and are struck with the need to be cleansed, the need to be purified from your unrighteousness, know that this awareness is the good work, it's a good gift of the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to your need to be cleansed. If you sense that you are unclean and marred by your own wrongdoing, come and be cleansed from all that stains your record. The work that Jesus has done by His death 
is to wash us clean, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But know that He doesn't just wash us clean, but He clothes us with new clothes, His clothes, His righteousness. So it's not just like that our record gets of wrong gets removed, but now we get a new record. It's not even our own. We don't accomplish it. We don't do it. It's all a gift of His grace that we are now credited with His righteousness so that we can stand before Holy God. Repent, believe, and be washed and cleansed and made new. That is the hope of salvation in Jesus. After this, Jacob leads his family toward Bethel and God protects them from being attacked. So the first thing that God does is draw them back in repentance to walk in faith. And now he leads them out and he shows them his protection. He does this, verse 5 says, by causing a terror to fall upon the cities around them. Now we can read that and think, that's nice that God protected them and caused this terror to fall around them. But let's consider what's happening here. As we've already said, Jacob and his family, from a human perspective, should have been attacked. What they did was wrong. The, the, the boys that went in there and massacred the uh, Simeon and Levi that killed all the men, and then all the brothers joined in in the looting of the town, it was wrong. And of course, it wouldn't take long for word to spread. So from a human perspective, they should have been attacked. Not to mention, they were weaker and smaller than all the Canaanite towns they would have been walking through. In, in essence... They had a target on their back as they walked through these towns. And God protected them. God caused a fear to fall upon the people of those towns so that they were safe. Now, unfortunately, what we do with a story like this is that we think, well, if God loves me, then he will cause a fear to fall on anything harmful around me, and so nothing bad will ever happen to me. We, in a sense, turn a story like this into our own good luck charm because we don't want to suffer. We don't want to face uh, inconvenience. But God doesn't promise us safety from circumstances. Rather, he promises us safety in him. And this is a theme that we've seen in Genesis over and over again. And I think the reason that it's repeated so many times in Scripture is because we need it repeated. We want so badly a life of comfort and ease. And that is not the life that is promised to us because of what sin has done to this world. It's a life promised to us in the new heavens and the new earth, and we're all longing for that. But know that those longings, those desires, are not going to be fulfilled in this age. They're going to be fulfilled in heaven. That's why we long for Christ to return. It's also why Paul wrote in defiance against any triumph that death tries to claim over our lives. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So don't think in terms of comfort and ease, but know that even as you face suffering, you are safe. Nothing can snatch you from his hand. Nothing can sever you from his grip. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Paul's trying to make this exhaustive list here. Fill in the blank. Plug it in. The answer is nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate us out of the relationship. So remember when fear and anxiety come knocking at your door, remember God's protection is not from the circumstance but it's protection in Him. 
that he will keep us safe. In the words of Isaiah, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Again, it doesn't mean that we won't suffer. We will. We're told we will suffer. We will face difficult things. Some of you are in the middle of difficult things right now. Some of you will walk back into those difficult things when you leave these doors. And God is with you through this. He will deliver you from it ultimately. And the deliverance may not come in this life. That again is what the hope of heaven is. That is the ultimate deliverance. That we will one day be freed from everything that weights us down. The sin that entangles our very hearts as well as all the physical infirmities that we experience and the broken hearts that we experience from those who have hurt us, all of this will be made right in heaven. Well, in the next section, we see another appearance of God before Jacob. We call this a theophany where God comes and visits him. And because of the similarity between this and the previous one that we saw, some have said that this is just a recounting of the same event. But Moses wants us to be sure that we know it's not the same event. It's a separate event. He uses the word, for example, again, that God came to him again. This is a different one. And God is doing something in particular here to confirm the promises that he made to Jacob and to affirm what has been given to him, to affirm it through this name change. Jacob is now the man that God foretold that he would be, not perfect, but walking in faith and repentance. And this confirmation is also different because now it's happening in the promised land. God has done what he promised. Jacob said, if you'll, if you'll go with me, if you'll be my God, if you'll keep me safe, if you'll clothe me, then I will, I, I, you, you, know, you will be my God, right? God's done that. He's brought him over the past 30 years through the long journey, even under the hand of Laban. We talk about suffering. Talk about injustice. We saw that happen to Jacob over and over again. For many years, he worked unjustly uh, for, for Leah, didn't know it, and then for Rachel. And then continuing on, Jacob or Laban changed his wages how many times? Some of you are going through similar situations like that, injustice. And we see that God was with him all along. And now he's coming back to him and appearing to him again to say, to, to, for him to, to, to say, see, I, I did what I said I would do, that I am the faithful God. In this promise, another difference that we see that sets us apart from the other theophany is he adds the language, kings shall come from your body in verse 11. This new language that's pointed out is pointing to something. It's something that's not reiterated again in the line of promise until the Davidic covenant. So what we see is that this is not only pointing to David and Solomon and the other kings, but it's pointing beyond David and Solomon and the other kings. It's pointing to the true king of Israel, the Messiah, Jesus who was born in the line of Judah, the son of Jacob. Don't miss that. That God's plan was fulfilled. All this dysfunction, all the bad actions, all the things that we've seen that we say from a human perspective should have wrecked the plan. God is pointing forward to say, I keep my promises. I keep my promises. And so in response to the blessing of the promise confirmed to him, Jacob worships God. He pours out an offering upon the stone pillar. And then from Bethel, the family travels on in the direction of Hebron. This is where Jacob's father Isaac was. He's still living. Rebekah has died. And along the way, as they travel in this direction, two sad things happen, the first of which is the death of Rachel. Now, Rachel had prayed, as you may remember, when she gave birth uh, to, to Joseph, she had prayed that the Lord would give her another son. 
And we find out in this text that the Lord has answered that prayer. She was pregnant now with who would be Benjamin. But as she went into labor, it says that it was a hard labor. And her nurse tried to comfort her with the words that this was a son. She would be encouraged in that. But Rachel gave him the name, son of my pain or son of my sorrow, because she, she knew her life was in jeopardy, and indeed she died. And we can imagine how difficult this was for Jacob. Here it is, this juxtaposition of, of joy, you know, a twelfth son given to him in birth, and yet the loss of Rachel, who was truly his beloved wife, all in the same moment. And so Jacob decides, rather than son of my sorrow, to change his name, son of my right hand. And this is the idea of uh, the, the language, the Arabic word that this comes from is, uh, is, is, is good luck, what we would consider good luck. But we know in the Reformed world we don't talk about luck. And so we would say this is, this is, uh, this is the blessing of God. And, and in essence what Jacob is doing is rather than focusing on the memory of the sorrow of this moment in the birth of Benjamin, he is focusing on the goodness of God uh, and rather than the, death, the sorrow of the death of Rachel, he's focusing on the goodness of God in the birth of Benjamin. And so Rachel is buried then near Bethlehem. Uh, they lived there for a while, it says, beyond the Tower of Eder. And it's here that the second sad thing happens. And, and it's really, it's, it's strange because it's just mentioned in passing. And you kind of wonder why it's stuck in there and what significance it is. It says that Reuben takes Bilhah, his father's concubine, and had relations with her. And why is that even in there and what happened here? Well, this was not an act of lust or romance or anything that we would uh, expect when we read something like this. Rather, this was a political move. Uh, it's, it's shameful in every sense, and we're going to see the effects of it. So, you know, Rachel was Jacob's favorite. We know that from the beginning. It was almost love at first sight when, when Jacob first saw Rachel. And so Rachel was, in effect, the chief wife. Now, all of this is, the Scripture describes this, but just because Scripture describes something doesn't mean it prescribes something. And we know that polygamy is not God's best way for us. He gave Adam and Eve together, husband and wife, to be alone. We weren't designed to live in polygamous relationships. And so just because Scripture describes something doesn't mean it prescribes something. So we know this is wrong. This is a messed up relationship. But God still works and is still redeeming it. And so in this messed up relationship, one of the effects of this is this whole conflict of having a chief wife. I mean, that shouldn't even be the, be the, 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 the case. But it's the nature of sinful hearts. So Reuben sees this. And so in an, in an, in an effort to make sure that her servant doesn't become the chief wife, he takes and violates her so that his mother, Leah, would become the chief wife. It was totally a political move. And if we're left to wonder or guess about any of this, we can fast forward and we'll just peek ahead for just a minute to Genesis 49. As Jacob, uh, Jacob comes to the end of his life, he speaks over his sons. Listen to how Jacob speaks over Reuben in Genesis 49, verses 3 and 4. He says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. That's what Jacob had to say. 
you can see, I mean, the, the English is translated with the exclamation point because it's an emphatic use. There's no exclamation point in Hebrew, but it's an emphatic use of language. And so it's, that's what Jacob is, is claiming here. What Reuben did was wrong. And so his legacy, his preeminence as firstborn is reduced to what we might call an anti-blessing. It's all taken away. And here's the lesson for us. As we saw with Simeon and Levi last week and the actions that they took, even though God forgives us, even though nothing can separate us from His love, doesn't mean that there aren't consequences to our sin. And sometimes the consequences to our sin, we get to live with those the rest of our lives. They're not removed. Now, we thank God because they will one day be removed. It's not eternal. That's a wonderful thing. But let's admit it, we'd like for them to be removed in this life. We don't want the consequences of our sin. We don't want things hanging over us. But we see that God still allows those consequences. Well, the final portion of chapter 35 has, in a sense, some kind of closing remarks. And we've become familiar with how Moses writes and organizes his, his, this, this book of Genesis as the author of it. And one of the things that we've noticed he does is use genealogies as bookends. So we get this short genealogy of Jacob's sons, and then chapter 36 is this entire genealogy of Esau, and we'll get to that in a few weeks when I'm back. But this means this is the end of the act of the play, so to speak. So this is the end of the story of the patriarchs. He's beginning next, and we're going to go into the story of Joseph. That's going to be the next part or the next act in the play. And so here he is, for organizational purposes, closing this out. But what's important to point out is he's describing the death of Isaac in these last few verses, Jacob's father. But Isaac's actually going to live another uh, decade or so past uh, when, when uh, Joseph is sold into slavery. So it's not linear in, in what he's describing here in terms of when Isaac dies, but rather it's, it's for organizational purposes that he includes this. And, and it's worth mentioning that we see not only that Jacob has come full circle now, he's back in Hebron where it all began, but also he and his brother come back in what seems like harmony, at least for the moment, to bury their father. Uh, what, we, what we see from Jacob's life is that it's truly a story of God's faithfulness and grace. And here's a guy who has struggled, who has tripped, who has literally wrestled with God. And yet God has triumphed, not through uh, turning Jacob into this pristine example that we might think of, of someone we'd want to emulate on every level. I mean, Jacob did some awful stuff, but rather he is a trophy of God's grace, saved in mercy. Well, words like faithful and grace and love and Words that we use so commonly often lose their luster. I hate this. I hate this for myself. I hate this for all of us because these are words that shouldn't lose their luster. I don't want to lose the grandeur of grace or the life-giving power of God's faithfulness. And we do make effort to find new ways of expressing these things in fresh ways so that we don't, uh, that we don't lose sight of them. But even those age over time, our words ex- are exhausted. We, we run out of ways to express these ideas that are inexhaustible. But these ideas must not simply be pursuits of language. The ideas of the faithfulness of God is not just a pursuit of language, but a pursuit of our very hearts. We have to go after God with a certain discipline and diligence so that our hearts are continually rediscovering his goodness toward us, so that it's made fresh to us again and again. And the way that we do that is what we have seen right here in Genesis chapter 35. Repentance, worship, trust and obey. 
Those are the three things that we saw happen in this text today. Repentance, when Jacob called, he acted in repentance, called his people to be repentance. Repentance should mark our lives every day because every day we sin. Every day we refuse to believe. Every day we do our own thing. Every day we worship our own idols and love the things of this world. And in repentance we turn from our sin by faith in Christ. We can only do this by the Spirit's power within us. So repentance. Secondly, worship. Worship is not only the adoration of God in our hearts, but it's really the worship of God with our lives, how we live our lives, that we live our lives as unto Him. It's not just something that we participate in on Sunday, but how we live every day. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So worship is loving God with our lives by the power of His Spirit within us. So repentance, worship, and then trust and obey. I put these together because they belong together. See, when we separate them, they become kind of meaningless. If we say we believe God but don't obey Him, our belief amounts to very little. Scripture tells us that the the demons believe and they shudder. They believe but they don't obey. True faith demonstrates itself in our obedience. And again, we can only do this by the Holy Spirit's power working within us. So God, just as God has been infinitely compassionate to Jacob in his life, so our God's compassions never fail us. There's no shadow of turning with our God. He never changes. His compassions never fail and as he has been for, he been faithful to us, he forever will be. Great is his faithfulness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the faithfulness that we see of you in the life of Jacob. There are so many things from his life, Lord, that we, we wouldn't have an answer to, that, that puzzle us, that confuse us. We wonder not only why they happen, we wonder why they're included in Scripture. And yet, Lord, we see at the end, as we come to the end of his life, that, wow, your compassions never fail. You never left him. You never discarded him. You never gave up on him. You never threw away that relationship. But because of your great love and your grace, not because of anything Jacob did, you preserved and protected and delivered him. And so, Lord, may we know that just as you were faithful to Jacob, so you will be faithful to us. And may we not only rest in your faithfulness, but maybe we have joy in your faithfulness toward us that we know that you are at work preserving and protecting. Lord, would you continually draw us to walk in faith and repentance, to make us aware of our sin, to turn from it, to, 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 to rid ourselves from it, to cleanse ourselves to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, that we would confess our sins knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, help us to know that cleansing. And then to walk, Lord, in worship, to live our lives of worship before you, trusting and obeying and finding that it is truly in obedience that we can know rest in this life. Lord, when we face suffering, may we know that you ultimately deliver us, that death has no victory, that the sting of death has been removed, 
that there is nothing in this life that can separate us from you, that we will ultimately be delivered. And Lord, we long for that day and we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we ask these things. Amen.